Before I read our scripture tonight, I wanted to, some of you perhaps don't know, uh, Adrian Scott is going to preach tonight. Most of you do. Uh, Adrian and Cynthia came just a few years, they uh, came to Fort Worth just a few years after we did. And it was and is one of the happiest things that has ever happened to me. Um, They have encouraged Kay and me as much as any human being in these 17 years. Um, They've been gracious and kind. Uh, We've laughed a few times. Um, Cynthia was an amazing friend to Kay, such that rivaling Kay's pain over leaving the children when she retired as children's director a few years ago was not being with Cynthia at church. Um, I was so grateful and am so grateful that Cynthia was there. And I think most of you do know that Cynthia is our, uh, has been our secretary these many years. And she's just this, you know, it's, it's great that the first voice you hear, the first person you see is pure sunshine. You know, it's just a wonderful gift that she has given us, and everybody knows um, her love to the children from the school that come by, and we thought we lost her years ago, but praise God, you're still here, and um, I still remember, and it still moves me, when we gathered together before um, Trinity was planted. We had been meeting in two services, but for the last two services, we met together. It was hard to get everybody in here, but we did it. And the very last Sunday, Adrian prayed the prayer that sent them away. And some of the words of it still ring in my heart. Um, Beautiful heart-stirring, um, a, a, a wisdom, you know, that took in and expressed uh, the amazing thing that God was doing among us. So, <clears throat> it is our uh, great, my, my great happiness that Adrian is going to preach tonight, and um, having heard him already you will be greatly encouraged, as we knew you would be. So, again, thank you, brother, for being here. And you can pay me later for all that stuff I said. (laughs) So now let's turn to uh, Numbers chapter 21, found on your bulletin on page 4. Adrian will refer... Uh, to this passage later, but I recall to you that Jesus quotes uh, this passage, refers this passage uh, in John chapter 3, right before the famous John 3.16. So um, this passage, you might not think about it, but this passage has a a noble brotherhood where it rests now in the New Testament. Verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, 
heard that Israel was coming by way by the way of Atherim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, speaking of manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Darwin. It's a pleasure to be home. It's good to see each of you here this evening. <clears throat> Forward Presbyterian holds a very special place in the hearts of Cynthia and I. You are an amazing church, and I'm sure that we've taken away from you because of what we've learned here more than what we could possibly have ever brought to you, but we're thankful for our time in a fellowship among such amazing people. I'd like to ask you to contemplate that passage that was read for us, Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9. Preceding chapters of Numbers leading up to chapter 21, particularly beginning with chapter 11, chronicle the deep satisfaction of the nation of Israel since they had been delivered from the misery of slavery in Egypt. They found every conceivable thing to complain about, including the miraculous bread from heaven, manna, and even referred to it as miserable food, as Pastor Darwin read in verse 5. The real Israelites also complained about their water and their lack of it. 
complained about the hardships of travel. They complained about the physical size of the enemies in Canaan that they were expected to defeat. They even went so far as to accuse God of delivering them from Egypt for the express purpose of letting them die in the wilderness. And their complaints went on and on and on. It is indeed a cyclical history of sin by Israel. Then their eventual repentance and then finally forgiveness by God. In our passage, the Israelites are moving closer to the land that God promised them, Canaan. In return for God's favor of a victory over the Canaanites, they promised the Lord in return that if you would give us the land, we will return, we will repent, and we will obey. If they're going to successfully overcome the Canaanites, they also strategized that they would travel to Canaan by taking the shortest route, most direct route, and then attack once they were there. However, Israel would have to travel through Edom in order to make this strategy work. And when Moses approached the Edomites and asked for permission to travel through their land, promising that they would not eat any of their food or take anything away from the Edomites, the Edomites declined their offer. The Israelites then had to take the longer route, the long way around the land of Egypt, along the Red Sea. And it was an arduous journey for them. It was long and hot and weary traveling this dusty and rocky terrain. And in addition to all of this inconvenience and hardship, Miriam, the sister of Moses and his encourager for the most part, and his brother Aaron, his right hand in the ministry, both died in chapter 20. In a moment of frustration and bewilderment, the Israelites spoke out against God and against Moses, and they asked, Moses, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Those Israelites who were so hardened and bitter by their life's experiences, their hard trials, they felt emboldened and perhaps even some of the younger who were maybe a little easier influenced joined in to hurl their insults at the very God of Israel who had so recently, miraculously, and mercifully delivered them from the hand of Egypt's oppression. How soon we forget. It was as if they were chastising God and shaking their fist in the face of the Almighty because of their present troubles. To dare chastise God is the highest and most audacious of human acts. And how dare they compare human intellect to divine wisdom? It's nothing more than a significant evidence of a lack of faith and sound judgment coupled with an overabundance of arrogance and self-pride. With this latest and most blatant 
attack on God's good judgment, the Lord sent fiery serpents into the camp and bit the people so that many of the Israelites died in verse 6. A line had been drawn and a line had been crossed by the Israelites. Even a very casual reading of our text teaches us something very basic, and that is that sin has its horrible consequences. These campers are not only ungrateful, but they're tired, they're frustrated, they're bitter, they're angry, they possess a critical spirit, and now they're also sick and afraid and dying. They are a pitiful band of campers. In our mind's eye, we can envision fatalities strewn all over the Israelite camp. Many who had not died were dying. It's a mess. If something isn't done, perhaps everyone in the camp would die. The Israelites were hopeless. There was nothing they could do for themselves. And because of their sin, they were a grossly undeserving people. With the death count of family and friends and neighbors who are dying from poisonous venom, it's obvious that there is something deadly in this serpent's bite. And in this we see the true appraisal of sin. Sin is deadly. Certainly not always physically, but certainly always spiritually. It seems that in every tent, if you walked from one tent to the next and peeked in the doorway, some new victim was being claimed by the sting of the serpent. Homes are quickly being left fatherless and motherless and even childless. And in this instance, the evil, even-handed and non-discriminating arm of divine judgment is the chilly hand of death. Death had come and visited the camp of the Israelites. Well, I would like to ask a question. Is this serpent's bite somehow a picture of the stinging, deadly nature of sin with its dire consequences of pain and sorrow and regret and eventual death and separation? And if so, a follow-up question, are these Israelites the only ones bitten by this serpent? I say no. All of humanity, beginning with Adam's fall, are brought forth in iniquity, the psalmist tells us in the 51st Psalm, which speaks of, the, of humanity's total inherited depravity, F.F. Bruce calls it, or the state of humanity, humanity at birth. And then Paul chimes in in the book of Romans chapter 3 when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one born of Adam has been bitten by this serpent. We were injected with the venom of disobedience and rebellion against the heavenly authority. And the effect of sin is it still stings. 
cause of sin in our world. We live with the stress of family and work life. That stings. The issues of aging poorly, the crumbling family structure and personal relationships, our ill health and frail financial concerns, they all sting and all are a result of sin. Verse 7, the Israelites confess, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. Confession is good for the soul. These people realize the snakes, these troubles, these fiery bites, the deadly sickness, these feelings of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency and arrogance, this anger and bitterness and complaining will not leave on its own. Pray that, pray to God that he takes away the serpents from us. They need a God intervention. We need God, they were saying, to provide a remedy. When you can't help yourself, you need somebody who can help you in a time of need. The Lord responds in verse 8, and he says he will help them. He would help them, but it would require a measure of faith from them. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. They need faith. The pole will do no good if you don't look to it. The serpent on the pole will have no effect if you don't look to it. If you notice, this is God's remedy for the sick and dying in Israel. There weren't several different remedies or solutions. There is only one solution. There's no other cure offered. Just this one. This is what distinguishes Christianity from the other religions of the world. This is the centrality of Christ. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the door. Look at a dead, lifeless figure on a pole was the only instruction for life and healing. It's a simple prescription. Why is it that so many fail to see Jesus as the uplifted one because of his simplicity? And to those who dare cast a saving look, God promised to forgive them and they will live. The Israelites, they were helpless. Some would say they were hopeless in terms of human capability. There was only one solution. The serpent on the pole was an accurate representation of the fiery serpents whose sting had affected the whole camp. I think certainly we would all agree that sin has had its effect upon the entire world's population, beginning with the fall of Adam. The serpents served as a mirror of their sin. The reason for their condition was because of their sin. And someone 
crowd perhaps thought this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. You want me to stand here and look to a figure on a pole, a lifeless figure, and find life. This other person would say, well, this is just too simple. It's another one of Moses' tricks. Doesn't make any sense. A third person spoke up and said, the last thing I want to do is look at that pole and be reminded of my sin when I see that serpent. But isn't that the point? It served to remind them of their sin and guilt, but also to remind them of the one who would take away their guilt and their pain. They are weak and dying. Their life is fleeing from their bodies. They cannot walk to the serpent. They're sick. They cannot run to it. They're weak. They can't shout out to it. Their breath is short. Lest they think it's their own efforts that save them, they could do none of those things. So God wrote a simple prescription and handed it to Moses and said, create a serpent of brass and put it on a pole and stand and lift it up high enough so that everybody, everybody could see. You could be short, you could still see it. If you're average height, you could see it. If you were tall, certainly you could see it. If you were bent over, somehow you could see it. The mystery of God's salvation is that everyone can see it. Amid such pitiful conditions, such horrific suffering and numbing sorrow, Moses points to the one lifted up. He didn't point to himself, but he pointed to the one lifted up. Look to the one who heals in our sickness who soothes our sorrows and lifts our burdens the one who gives us peace in troubling times and sins in a wave of hope when otherwise we would drown in our hopelessness look to the one who's hoisted high and hung long enough in his sovereignty for everyone who dared look could live people of Israel Moses said look to the one exalted high High above the chaos of this camp, look to the one who has been lifted up for us. This text has its historical significance, of course, its biblical historical significance. But it's also clearly pointing us to the one hoisted on a wooden beam 2,000 years ago. Whose whole purpose was to remind us of our sin, but more importantly, Remind us that he is our sin substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reminded of the simplicity of the gospel. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John says, Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You can look at this one on the tree. Stretched wide and hung high because this one, Jesus, has no poison. He knew no sin. 
but he brings life. Jesus didn't represent death, but he represented life, even on the cross. I have come that you might have life. And that more abundantly, John 10, 10 says. Notice that this figure on the pole has the power of life and death. If you only look in faith, look to this one lifted up. Elevated high above all others and fixed on a pole. You will not perish but have life. This is a call to Israel's obedience and saving faith in the word of God. So only look this way. Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The right time is when there is still time. Don't look at the pole. The pole can't save you. Look at the one fastened to the pole. Don't look at the institutional church. She can't save you in and of herself. Her ministers, her officers, her members. We can't save you. Look at the one who's lifted up. Look at that one on the pole. If you're tired, look anyway. If you're frustrated, look. If you're lonely, look. If you're heartbroken, look. Troubled, hurting, look. When you look, Jesus will work. Look to the one fastened to the tree by the will of God. Hoisted high by the pleasure of God, who hung there by the patience of God, and who died there because of the love of God. Look this way, Moses tells the camp. And when they looked that way, death and separation was brought to its knees. Sickness and pain was left fleeing. Hopelessness took leave and life replaced death. Because of that one, death no longer had power over those who dared look to the one who was raised. Old hymn writer wrote the song that says, look to Jesus now and live. This is the hope we have in Jesus, church. The one who's the beginner and the finisher of our faith. Look at the one on that pole. Finally, I close by saying the cross of Christ is the answer to the pain of sin. If you're weary of sin's sting, Christian, if you're struggling this evening, if you're holding on to faith with all you have, have you in your anger, your bitterness, or shame refused to look to Jesus? Do you feel like you don't deserve God's forgiveness and healing? Are you ashamed of your lack of spirituality or your inability to forgive? Well, isn't that what Monday, Thursday is all about? Our unworthiness. In a couple of days, we'll be able to celebrate God's goodness. Saints and sinners, I point you to Jesus. Look this way, and you too can be healed 
and live. Amen.